So in 2006, arguably one of the most important books in the history of biblical studies was published. It was Marcus Bachmuller's Seeing the Word, Refocusing New Testament Study. It was the subtitle that caught our attention. What refocusing was Bachmuller calling for? To my astonishment, the book turned out to be a clarion call that is a brilliantly loud and clear trumpet-like call to all scholars of the New Covenant Scriptures to once and for all return to the implied Messianic Jewish reading of the New Covenant Scriptures and correct the long-term dejudaization of Yeshua and the New Covenant Scriptures. In fact, the final chapter of the book called Seeing the Son of David, in that chapter, Bachmuller refers to this need for return and correction as the decisive subject of the book. Little did I know at the time that our visiting scholar, Dr. Joel Willits, had been part of Marcus Bachmuller's reading group, the discussions of which inspired the publication of the book. Dr. Willits, in fact, did his PhD in Cambridge under Marcus Bachmuller, along with our own David J. Rudolph. And he deemed it important to develop a deep relationship with David in an effort to truly understand a Messianic Jew's understanding of the New Covenant Scriptures. Now, while it should be difficult for anyone in Messiah to sit and listen to accolades about themselves while they're being introduced as a public speaker, sometimes such accolades are warranted as they are here. First, Joel is an assiduous, that is, relentlessly diligent, lifelong learner, so he's in very good company with us here. Second, he demonstrates uncompromised assiduity when it comes to hearing the texts of the New Covenant Scriptures on their own Messianic Jewish terms before writing articles and books. Third, he's aware of the ethical responsibilities associated with such writing. Fourth, and arguably most important, he has the audacity to work in the book of Galatians, but the humility to emulate Paul Menear of blessed memory, who stated, attempts to contend with Paul's thought quickly force any reader far beyond their depth. And unless one confesses that this goal exceeds their grasp, they have not yet even begun to grasp. In fact, I find Joel to be a lot like Moses Stewart, who before him in classical modernity became a model of the honest scholar of Paul by unabashedly admitting his unfeigned diffidence, that is, his unpretentious distrust and lack of confidence in relation to his own work, and a trembling sense of the responsibility incurred by such work. So in short, to quote his favorite band, he's the real thing, even better than the real thing. Joel, before God, Messiah, in this room of lifelong learners, I laud you with the double honor that belongs to those leaders who assiduously labor in the speaking and the teaching of the Word of God, according to 1 Timothy 5.17. 
I also reiterate what I said to you at the end of our first Zoom conference call. You are doing what you are called to be doing for such a time as this. Please welcome this year's visiting scholar, Dr. Joel Willits. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just getting to know Henry. I, the first time I, I talked to him on, a, on Zoom, I asked, should I pronounce it Henri? Um, but he said, no, call me Henry. Uh, but uh, anyone that spends any time with Henry goes away feeling a lot better about uh, the calling that God places on us individually. So it has been a blessing to be here. We had a great start last night, and uh, I, I sort of feel a bit like I need to apologize because some of you are coming in on kind of the middle of a conversation. Um, but uh, but uh, I will try to, as best I can, make the transition for those that were not with us last night into what we're going to talk about this morning, which is essentially to uh, consider the middle and latter part of the first chapter of the book of Galatians that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to some congregations in uh, the Roman province of Galatia. So if you have a, uh, a New Testament, if you have a, uh, a New Covenant set of scriptures, would you open with me to the uh, letter of Galatians? And as you're turning there, let me just uh, highlight some of the things we discussed last night. We began uh, noting the author, of course, is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a group of congregations that are uh, within Jewish social space. And we talked about the word ecclesia in the opening uh, verses, that we need to be careful how we translate that. Of course, most English translations is, are going to use the word church, which is fair enough, but we need to make sure that we l understand that word, not in our modern context, where that often represents uh, a building with uh, a steeple and uh, a cross, uh, but in fact, this was more like synagogues. In fact, uh, one colleague has suggested that it would be more helpful to readers, modern readers of, uh, of Pauline letters, to replace the word churches with the word synagogues. Uh, of course, in the ancient world, the word ecclesia uh, could make reference to a Jewish house of prayer, and we know that uh, Luke's uh, narrative, Luke's biography of Paul, makes the point that Paul always sort of entered a city and began preaching in the synagogue, and out of that Jewish social space uh, developed uh, new synagogues, messianic synagogues, I would, I would uh, suggest, uh, made up of Jewish believers in Yeshua as well as Gentile believers in Yeshua. In fact, is there's that, uh, that story of, uh, of his experience in Corinth where uh, he's sort of run out of the synagogue. And so the synagogue leader who comes to faith in Yeshua lives actually right next to the, uh, to the Jewish synagogue. And so you can imagine uh, how that might have gone on a Sabbath. 
um, with uh, these uh, uh, various family and friends coming to the same location to, uh, to celebrate Shabbat, and, uh, and here you have a Messianic congregation, and, uh, and the, the uh, uh, how, how should we call it, the, I don't know, that, we, that traditional Jewish would make much sense in that, in that setting, because uh, when we think about traditional Judaism, we're talking more or less about a form of rabbinic Judaism, which didn't exist, but nevertheless, it was something of a, of a rival in terms of uh, uh, the representation of, of, uh, of Israel's tradition. Well, um, Paul immediately sort of foregoes the standard um, thanksgiving for the people. If you know much about Paul's letters, you know he sort of follows the, 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 the typical letter-writing strategy with the uh, identification of, of himself, uh, usually he has co-senders and he names the, the, uh, the recipients, the people who are going to receive the letter. And then, and then he, he gives a grace, sort of this uh, grace and peace to you, which is a significant statement in uh, Galatians, as a matter of fact. You might even call it kind of the, the uh, epitome of Paul's gospel, this sense in verse 4 that, that uh, Paul makes about the significance of Yeshua, that he gave himself, which is a, which is a reference to the, the crucifixion, he gave himself, but I would also argue that the crucifixion becomes a, a, a essentially uh, not only the event in and of itself, but really the, the life of Jesus, the life of Yeshua was one that was formed in that self-giving. So the cross really is a way of understanding his whole incarnation, I would argue. So when, when you have this sense that he gave himself, uh, we're very quick to think of the cross and we forget the whole life of Jesus, which was shaped by the cross. Um, and that's an error if we forget that because our Gospels aren't simply a story of the death of Jesus. They're the story of the life of Jesus, which I know you understand, but many of uh, Gentile believers in Jesus sort of uh, have missed the fact that most of the Gospels tell stories about Jesus teaching and living, right? Um, the Gospels are not simply a prologue, a long extended prologue with, uh, with uh, then a story of the crucifixion and resurrection. The life of Jesus matters. I know I'm preaching to the choir here in a congregation like Beth Messiah, um, but of course Jesus lived a very Torah-observant life. He called his disciples to be faithful to the Torah. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's important to see that uh, when we talk about the, the, the self-giving of Jesus in verse 4 of Galatians, we think not just of his death, but of his life, death, and resurrection. Well, that leads to a rescue. Uh, we've, he's given himself, this is verse 4 still in Galatians 1, given himself in order that, that we might be rescued from the present evil age. And so this is the, the, the outcome of the, of the ministry and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is rescue from the present evil age. And I can't tonight, this morning, spend much time unpacking that because I'm getting actually somewhere else. But I want you to see that immediately after this sort of wish of, of Messiah, uh, Messiah gift, Messiah peace, the peace of the Messiah that comes through entrusting oneself to that self-giving, 
it brings a, a sphere of shalom that is uh, inaugurated but not finished. It will be finished when Yeshua returns and the shalom that one can experience in the congregation of Yeshua will one day be true of all people and all reality, which is not the case now. We live in the already not yet, as people have termed it. But immediately, rather than saying, and I thank you for all the good things that God's doing in your life, which is what he does in Thessalonians and Corinthians, even those Corinthians get a thank you, Paul goes right after it right here in verses 6 through 9. And he says, I'm amazed, I'm astounded that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you into into the grace of Messiah and turning to a Another gospel, which isn't a different gospel, except that there are those who are stirring you up, trying to pervert the gospel of the Messiah. And after Paul sort of states this very clearly, the problem, he anathematizes, he pronounces a curse, which, by the way, is kind of a significant thing there. Uh, Paul doesn't, isn't sort of... Uh, commonly kind of calling down the curse of God on people. But if you mess with the gospel of Yeshua, Messiah, you're messing with something that's cosmic, eternal, from God the Father. And the only outcome of that kind of perversion is curse. And Paul even rhetorically says, if I come and I offer a gospel other than the one I gospeled, may I be a curse. Even if an angel comes. And on the heels of this, Paul says what is, I think, one of the most significant things in the letter and sets really the whole agenda of the argument going forward from this particular point very early in the letter. We're still in kind of the introductory portion of the letter. But this statement in 110 is essentially the core of the argument of the whole and particularly... The argument for the first section, which begins in verse 11 of chapter 1 and takes us to verse 21 of chapter 2. Uh, Paul's letter can be divided up into, um, into several sections. And one of the first sections, or the, the first section after the introduction, is this, uh, what's often called the autobiography, where Paul tells us uh, a, a few stories out of his life Um, in order to uh, uh, persuade his audience of something. We'll come to that uh, in a moment. Um, And this verse, verse 10 of chapter 1, is something of a hinge from what he said to what he's about to say as he develops this argument in order to persuade Gentile believers in Jesus that who's ever throwing them into confusion and causing them to think that as a Gentile, they need to take up a Jewish pattern of life, they need to cut it out. They need to realize the gravity of what it is they are on the cusp of agreeing to. Now, I've suggested some things that, that I realize I, I, I'm, for some, this may be, I might be leaving some, some loose ends Let me just say one more thing, and that is this. I believe that Galatians, 
contains a, a, a vision of the body of Messiah that is today, in general, completely missed by readers of the New Testament. Um, now again, it's not necessarily missed by this congregation, so I'm, you're probably going like, to shake your head and yawn a little bit when I say this, but please understand that the vision of the ecclesia, the vision of the body of Messiah that Paul articulates uh, is for us, for our moment, revolutionary. And his vision is one that understands the community to be a, at a theological necessity. It must be a community of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. You could call this letter a manifesto for a circumcised and uncircumcised ecclesia. And I stress the words circumcised and uncircumcised because they capture the embodied nature of the vision of the church that Paul articulates here. He's not thinking in abstract categories. There's nothing abstract about circumcision. Ask Abraham if we could. Um, and, and so Paul, in addressing circumcision and uncircumcision, is thinking about the pattern of life that is determined by the cultures represented by circumcision and uncircumcision. And so his vision of the, of the body of Messiah is one at a theological necessity includes and must include th this polarity. Because the way Paul sees it in Galatians, in case you're not going to stick around this weekend, he sees it as absolutely soteriological and ecclesiologically necessary that they be together, unified, interdependent. The interdependency of the circumcised and the uncircumcised is, is at the very center of Paul's vision of the ecclesia. And the ecclesia is the tangible, embodied manifestation of the reality of what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Nothing for Paul is more important than the ecclesia because it is the reality that speaks to the significance of Yeshua's self-giving. Does that make sense? So, as we come then off of this anathema, Paul then makes a, a very powerful statement in verse 10. He says, Am I now trying to win... I'll, I'll pull, pull this up. Am I now seeking the approval... Oh, I need to pause and mirror my screens. I apologize for this. Sorry. So we're all on the same page. The Greek is on the one side. The Hebrew is on the other. I don't expect you to read Greek. Um, and I, I, in, in a normal sort of um, uh, opportunities where I'm te teaching to a congregation, I, I may not pull this out, but since this is MSI, I'm kind of being a little bit more kind of, you know, like luxury, a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, professorial versus sort of preacher, although I can't really separate the two. I'm sort of a, in my teaching, I'm, I'm, I'm all advocating. You know, I, just a side note, I was never really great in the English system because the English are, are very reserved. And I, can't, I don't know if you've realized this, but that's not really me. 
Um, I'm not a reserved person. And, and, I, and in the, sort of the, the quintessential English professor sort of says, it could be this, it could be this. Um, and so we're just going to kind of offer a vanilla conclusion. Um, and, and I'm always advocating. So um, I barely got through my Viva, um, but I did, thank, thank the Lord. Um, but uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm an advocate, um, and I've, begun, I've really uh, sort of accepted that about myself. Um, so uh, take it or leave it. Uh, but I think uh, the fact that you invited me here, I, I assume you're going to take it, so that's good. Um, <laughs> There are in other in environments where uh, they, they choose to leave it, uh, and, uh, and more of them, really, than, you would, than, than, than uh, the taking it. So I, I feel very much at home here, um, because I think uh, this is not only something that you resonate with, but, but in fact, uh, perhaps even I, I, my contribution would be to, to uh, offer uh, an encouragement uh, in, in the vision that you're, that you're uh, setting out here. Uh, through this, uh, through this uh, body of Messiah, this particular expression of it. So he says, I'm, am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Am I trying to please people? If I was still pleasing people, I would not be a doulos of Messiah, a servant, which um, is perhaps a, a weak way of putting it, um, suggestive more of Downton Abbey, perhaps, than 10 years a slave. And I think when Paul's speaking here and using this, he's not thinking, my lady. He's not thinking of English, you know, 19th century aristocratic house servants. He's thinking of slaves. Now, Henry knows a lot more about this than I do, but I'm going to offer this morning a reflection on uh, what Paul is saying here about being a slave of the Messiah. The first thing to note is that um, the structure of, of this passage uh, is very carefully organized. Paul is saying essentially five, he's making five propositions, and the five propositions are building up to a, to a crescendo which the crescendo then becomes the most important proposition in the list. The second thing to note is these aren't really questions. Paul is not saying, asking, do you think I'm trying to win the approval of humans? Would you give me your opinion on that? These are rhetorical questions. And when you come across a rhetorical question, you, what you're really coming across is a statement, not a real question. Paul is saying, I am absolutely, fundamentally not seeking the approval of human beings. I am fundamentally, absolutely seeking the approval of God. I am not fundamentally, absolutely not trying to please people. Because if I were, I would not be Messiah's slave. The logic from the ground up is based on the assumption that Paul is Messiah's slave, which he believes is incontestable. So he's writing to the Galatians. They know the life that the apostle Paul has lived, and it is absolutely un, um, unthinkable that those first statements were true because of Paul's relationship to Messiah, which he calls himself 
on a regular basis a slave of Messiah. And so because that is true, the, it, it negates the other option. So I don't seek to please another master besides him, and I try to win the approval of God and not another. What does Paul mean when he talks about a slave of Messiah? Well, that word has resonances in a few different categories. One of the categories is spiritual. The Psalms, for example, are full of an account of the Aved, the servant of the Lord, the, the suffering righteous one. And of course, we read from Isaiah and the famous servant songs echo this idea that there will be one who comes as the servant of God to redeem Israel and to invite the nations to worship along with Israel from Jerusalem. And so, when Paul's talking about a slave, in, in the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, there is uh, a positive resonance with this idea. In a culture that would understand slavery very clearly, historians tell us that in Rome itself, uh, the Roman Empire probably had... Um, like a million slaves or a couple of million slaves just in the, the city of Rome itself. It, it was a, a sort of an ubiquitous reality for the ancient world. Um, and Paul, knowing the, 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 the power of that, knowing the, the, the darkness even of that word, uh, the, the offense of that word, uh, he uses it anyway. And in part, certainly it's because of this sort of heritage uh, within Jewish scripture that takes that word and turns it into a virtue with respect to a relationship with God. And it is, of course, the perhaps one of the clearest characteristics of Jesus himself, one who came as a servant, and I can think, of course, of Philippians chapter 2 and the, the, the very powerful hymn that's there in verses 6 through 11 that talks about uh, the son not considering equality with God something to, to be retained, but, but, but divested himself of it and became a servant, and you know the rest. So there's a spiritual sense to that. There's also a political sense, actually, because the kings of Israel were called servants of God, and particularly David. And so um, there is a political nuance. And then the, the third one is a liturgical one or an ethical one, and that's the, the way in which as, as uh, followers of Yeshua, uh, we are bound to him. He is master. We are his slave. Um, that framework is, is something that, that Paul uh, knows, the, the, knows the, the, the violence of it and yet wants to use it to perhaps unsettle us, to, 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 to think about what in our life is the normative 
structure for our way of being in the world? To what do we adhere? What structures our life? What, what is the, the authority of our pattern of life? Paul says that anything other than Messiah makes one outside the, the structure of discipleship. And, and, and hear, hear me clearly here. Paul is, is introducing something that will be fundamental to the whole letter, and that is the question of what are we allowing to be the normative structural principle for our lives? To what do we look to to give us direction about how to be in the world? And what Paul is saying is that for him, Messiah alone is the structuring principle of his life. Now, why here? Why now does Paul make this self-reference? Well, on the one hand, many believe the reason Paul does it is because he needs to, to sort of fend off criticism. So he is, he's on the back foot, and he's defending himself because people are accusing him of seeking to please humans. And so he has to say, that's not what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a slave of Messiah. I want to suggest to you that there actually is no positive evidence in the letter itself that would suggest that Paul is defensive here. If we read the, the, the text off of the page, what we come away with is a Paul not on the defense, but Paul on the offense. And I would suggest to you that the reason he's bringing this up now is because he wishes to implicitly compare himself to the people that are throwing the Gentile believers in Jesus into confusion. He's beginning to set out an agenda that will become much more explicit later in the letter, but here is only implicit, where he's inviting the Gentile believers in Jesus who are hearing this to ask themselves how the teachers who are throwing them into confusion, these people Paul calls agitators, how they measure up to Paul. And so Paul is, is in, uh, initiating a comparative argument that is going to take us through the rest of chapter 1 and through chapter 2. And basically his argument is these agitators, these troublemakers, their normative principle for, this, for structuring the pattern of life is not Yeshua the Messiah. It's something else. And Paul will show one story after another story after another story that his, not only does he structure his life uh, by Yeshua, he also has the authority to call others into that enslavement to the Messiah. He is an apostle commissioned and called by God the Father and by Yeshua the Messiah. So you have this kind of dual agenda here of implicit criticism and authority. Now, what I want to suggest to you then is that this passage is misinterpreted if one takes it in a very general sense about seeking approval. Now, I think there's a principle there. We shouldn't seek the approval of humans in general, but we should seek the approval of God because we're slaves of Messiah. Fair enough. But as, 
as Paul unfolds the argument, we need to then look back on this verse because what we discover is that Paul actually isn't talking about a general principle of seeking the, 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 the approval of humans, but he's talking about seeking the, 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 the uh, normative structure of, for him, it was Pharisaic Judaism that has now been set aside for the Torah of the Messiah. That for, for Paul, the Torah still provides the, listen, the normative structure of pattern of life for a Jewish Yeshua believer. But it doesn't look to the traditions of the fathers to define how to understand and live out the Torah, but rather it looks to Yeshua, his life, his sacrificial death, and his teachings. Now, I can't, in this morning's talk, unpack each of the stories in chapter 1, but if you go and you look through those stories, particularly the one about his calling in verses 13 through 17, you'll see that he makes a reference to the traditions of the fathers that he was zealous for. And he refers to his former pattern of life in Judaism, which is often completely misunderstood. A very common, popular way of understanding that is captured in the New Living Translation, where it says Paul's former life in the Jewish religion, which is egregiously poor in terms of its translation. Because Paul himself defines what his former life was. Grammatically, syntactically, he says what it is. His former life, that is to say, my zealousness for the traditions of the fathers and my way of being which focused, in, in his words, on the eradication of Yeshua belief among Jewish populations. And so when Paul talks about his former manner of life, he's not talking in some general sense. He's talking very specifically about the pattern of life that was set out for him by his version of Pharisaism. And we know that Pharisaism was, a, was not a monolith. There were different kinds of Pharisaism. But his particular kind of Pharisaism was a, was a zealotry for the traditions of the fathers, which, by the way, the Jewish historian Josephus uses the same language to refer to the Pharisees and how they're different from the Sadducees. In a passage in Antiquities, actually, I have the, 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 the passage here. Let me just pull that up real quick. Where is it? In the passage from Antiquities, I won't read it, but you can maybe jot it down. Uh, Josephus is contrasting the Sadducees from the Pharisees, and he says that the Pharisees unlike the Sadducees, uh, along with the written Torah, follow the traditions of the fathers. And the Sadducees reject the, these sort of traditions and argue that only what is written should be obeyed. And I want to suggest to you then, as I wrap this up, and I know this has probably left a bunch of loose ends, but now you have reason to come back. So it's all a strategy here. That when Paul's talking about man-pleasing, He's personifying the Pharisaic tradition that before he encountered Yeshua was the normative principle for the structuring of his life. And whether or not these agitators and troublemakers are Pharisaic, 
which is a possibility because we have the evidence in Acts 15 where some Pharisaic types went up and tried to convince Gentiles in Antioch that they needed to uh, take up a Jewish Torah-observant life and believe in Yeshua. It could be that, or it could simply be that by analogy, these agitators in Galatia are using a normative principle other than the Messiah, and by doing that, by, by appealing to that, they are perverting Paul's gospel. So said positively, let me put it positively here. Positively, Paul structures his life as a Jewish believer in Yeshua by the Torah, but the normative interpretive authority for how that should be lived out, the halakha, is determined not by Pharisaic tradition or any other, but by Messiah himself. Now he's going to turn in chapter 2, and he's going to actually pull up the hood, and he's going to argue to Peter that Peter needs to have a, a halakhic conversion, because in the Antioch incident, Peter seems to be equivocating on what the normative authority is for understanding the life in the uh, Ecclesia. And for Paul, when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, when he met Yeshua resurrected from the dead, not only did Paul find a, a soteriological change that resulted, but he also found and discovered there was halakhic implications because uh, Paul's vision coming right from Yeshua was that the result of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus was a community of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And so to accomplish that and preserve both Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the Jewish Yeshua followers would have to rethink some of the aspects of what it meant to live out Torah in this new covenant community. Well, we'll put a pause there, and much more I could say, and I will do, so I invite you to come again this afternoon. Thank you.